Would you please open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, 16 is where we're going to be picking up. 1 Timothy 3, 16. I need to move fast this morning. I, I'm going to begin by reading a section of God's Word, so I, I need you to get there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to begin with reading the text, and then what we're going to do is we're going to let the text set and just kind of simmer. You know, when you're working on the stove and, and you gotta, you got to get something going and then go chop something else and, and, and work on that. So, so we're, we're going to read the text. We're going to let it set. We're going to let it, 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 it simmer for a bit. We're going to let the uh, juices marinate. And as we read it, we'll, we'll, we'll let it simmer. We're gonna, just going to let it marinate. And, 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 and then I'm, I'm going to transition to say some stuff. And then we're going to come back to the, the text that we have read that we're just going to let simmer on the stove for a bit. So turn to the sacred text of the, of the Bible. Uh, and, and that said, have your Bibles ready this morning. We're going to be in two main sections. I'm going to be cross-referencing a ton of sections. So hopefully you got the outline because the outline has all the cross-references down. So you don't, you don't have to be as rushed when you're taking notes. And there will be PowerPoints with the cross-references and what have you. Uh, today's message is topical. We're, we're moving through the texts of Scripture to do something topical. Uh, of course, there is care to make sure that, that every text that we turn to is handled in its proper context and what have you. But, but that said, let's come to the text. As I said, we've we got to move quick. 1 Timothy chapter 3, draw, draw your eyes please at, at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. But the spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons. And by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in and by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and of prayer. In pointing out these things, brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of faith and in sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, like I said, we're just we're just gonna we're just we're just gonna let this little this little skillet simmer. Just let it simmer for a second, okay? We're gonna come back to it. We've been talking about violence, human violence, murder. Uh, last week we also talked about natural violence, things like volcanoes, tornadoes, earthquakes, what have you. I, I've spent three sermons now explaining the philosophy and the theology behind the compatibility of the existence of God and the presence of evil. So, so for three Sundays, and today will be the fourth, four Sundays altogether, I've been offering you a sermon series entitled Making Sense of Violence. I, I was burdened for believers in our culture processing the tide of violent acts in recent weeks and in recent months in, in our country, the United States of America. We witnessed the New York subway shooting, the Buffalo supermarket shooting, the violent church uh, shooting here in Southern California, the demonic murdering of 19 kids and two teachers in the elementary school in Texas, the killing of four at St. Francis Hospital in Tulsa, scores of shootings in Chicago, and it, and it continues. This week, Monday, a 27-year-old CHP officer attempted to conduct a traffic stop in Studio City on Laurel Canyon Boulevard and was shot multiple times by a subject. Last I heard, he was in critical condition at Cedars-Sinai. Two other officers this week in a separate altercation were not as fortunate. On Tuesday in El Monte, they were, they were responding to a call of domestic violence and a stabbing at a motel, and they were essentially ambushed. According to the coroner's office, both officers were shot in the head. They leave behind wives and kids in mourning. We have an officer in our church this morning who was just texting me about this incident in El Monte as he was dispatched out there to be with the mourning families who lost their fathers. This Father's Day, two men not with their families, domed in the head, killed cold. Now in the book of Genesis, in the fourth chapter, in verse 10, we read of the first act of murder in human history. And we read in the text of Genesis 4.10, we read God asking, what have you done? What have you done? 
And then God goes on to say, the blood, and I quote, is crying out from the ground. And with this verse in mind, I imagine the crying out of the blood of the earth in this age in which we live, where the violence is so rampant. And meanwhile, as the blood dries and crusts in the ground, the cries resound in the heavenly courts. And we hear the gong and the clanging symbols of mortals in the earth pontificating why the violence is happening and, and pointing the finger to blame and to explain the melee. I said a moment ago that I was burdened for believers in our culture processing the tide of violent acts in our nation. And let me add that I am especially burdened as our brazen and bipolar media has shamefully been using its microphone to further divide our culture and disgracefully use these tragedies for their ratings, their agendas, and their respective socio-political virtue signaling. And sadly, many churches and sadly, many so-called believers are discipled more by the evening news of their TVs than the Sunday mornings with their churches. And that's assuming that they actually attend churches. There are scores of believers who are quite confused about how to truthfully and winsomefully engage in conversation around the violence in our culture. Not to mention to sit in silent mourning in times like this where men are, are murdered, shot in the head, and their wives and their kids are in mourning. It, and just to sit and to, and to pause and to seek the Lord and to pray. People are confused. They don't know how to mourn. They don't know how to engage. They don't even know how to theologically make sense out of this. And let me tell you, the violence might seem thick, but it is reoccurring and it is not going anywhere. In particular, when we have politicians who are soft on crime and let it thrive the way that it is. So with this in mind, I'm offering this sermon series, Making Sense of Violence, to help us as a church to process and to prepare for a day such as this, and to, to, to be able to engage with others around us because people are having this conversation. And so it's an opportunity for us to bring some sense to the violence. And so today will be the last installment of the series. So by way of introduction, we need to do some quick review because on any given Sunday, you know, unfortunately, people aren't always here. And so I'm going to do some review of what we have covered. And then I'm going to weave in some supplementary material by way of introduction that will introduce some new things. And again, remember, we've got this skillet on the stove and it's marinating this text that we just read. So we're going to come to that in just a moment. So keep your Bibles open. In the first two sermons of this series, we responded to evil as believers looking at, 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 at human violence, and we looked at the sacred book of Scripture to make sense out of these things. Turn out the news, turn out the, 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 the things in the world that are trying to make sense of it, and turn on the Word of God. That's what we've been doing. And so we've been processing that, and in processing that, one of the things that I emphasize to you is that the universe is more than mere matter. The universe has an immaterial realm that overlaps with the material realm, and so, so with that, we understand that with human violence and even natural violence, there is a dimension of the mnemonic. Okay, get that skillet. Get that skillet. It's time to take the top off. You don't want those onions to start burning too much, and let's start stirring it around. Draw your eyes at the text. Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. What did we read there? What do you see there? Deceitful spirits and demons. Okay, we've been talking about that. There's more than the material realm. There's deceitful spirits, that's what the text says, and demons. Supernatural beings that are in our dimension. Okay, they, they come into our dimension. And in this sermon series, we have reflected much on demons, especially the devil, the fall of humanity, and, and understanding that these are key components for understanding evil. This is why you can't turn to the news to make sense out of this, because no one on the news is going to unpack Genesis for you, and Ezekiel for you, and Isaiah for you, and, and, and tell you, look, I'll tell, I'll tell you what's behind this. It's Lucifer. It's darkness. Something the evening news isn't going to get into, but this is what you need to understand. There's a dimension of the demonic in this stuff. Violence is a fruit of the kingdom of darkness. Wherever it goes, the kingdom of darkness, there is destruction, dysfunction, distortion, and death. You, okay, keep, keep it simmering on the stove. Keep turning those onions around, all right? Don't, don't let it burn. Don't let it burn. First Timothy's in front of you. Notice the description here in the text of latter times and the falling away of faith. 
I read an article just yesterday entitled, America's Belief in God Hits an All-Time Low, a New Low, in which journalist Aaron Dotery presents polling data that shows the number of Americans who believe in God has dropped to the lowest level in 78 years. Now, in previous uh, uh, sermons in this series, I've also referenced the Barna Nationwide poll that surveyed our nation to see what people would ask God if they were able to ask God just one question and get an answer. And the most common response in that survey, people wanted to know, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Now, given the rise of unbelief in these latter days, and given the data showing that people are having a hard time making sense out of violence, given the increase that we are seeing from the polls of, of people disbelieving in God, given the rise of disbelief and the rise of violence, which, sidebar, by the way, write it down, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it said that this would be a sign of the last days, an increase in violence, and here in front of you in 1 Timothy chapter 4, a sign of the last days would be what? Unbelief. Now, given these things, it seems fitting that we not only study this topic for our own understanding as believers here at Delray Church, but also for purposes of addressing and engaging this unbelief around us, because people are asking questions about this. So rather than engaging in conversations with people about what politicians and what policies I think are attributing to this, rather than engaging in debates about, you know, uh, guns or this or that or whatever, I want to move the conversation to talk about God and to talk about evil and to talk about these foundational things. And that's what you're being equipped to do in this sermon series. As a pastor, one of my responsibilities is, is to equip the saints... For the work of ministry. A lot of times people uh, think, you know, well, it's the pastor's job to do the ministry. No, actually, it's your job to do, do the ministry. My job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. And so as a result, when we gather on Sundays, this is why we place a premium on learning. This is why you have sermon outlines. This is why we want you talking about the sermon. This is, this is why we, we tell you, put on your thinking caps when you come to church, we, because we're teaching you we, we want you to understand things. We want you to learn stuff so that you can employ that as you go out in the world. In addition to teaching, of course, we're here to worship. And so, so the, the part of my job up here is to, on the one hand, equip you for the work of ministry so as, you, as you leave this day and you go out into the world. But on the other hand, I'm not just a teacher. I'm a worship director. And I'm here to call you in repentance and faith today. I'm here to uplift the law of God. I'm here to uplift the gospel of God so that we would respond in, in worship. So we're here to learn and we're here to worship. First Timothy, it's in front of you. Simmering, simmering, still on stove. Keep, turn, keep turning around. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. What does it speak about there in the text? The sanctification of the word of God and prayer. Look at verse 6. Being nourished by the words of faith and of sound doctrine. That's what, that's what I'm up here to do to nourish you in the Word of God, to call you in sound doctrine here today. As well, I'm, I'm, I'm here to equip you. So we've got two things that we're doing. We're worshiping and we're learning, and those should be working together. As it relates to learning, we are commanded in Scripture to be ready to give an answer for our faith. You see here 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We are commanded to always be ready to make an offense for everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. This is commanded of you. You must be ready for this. This is so vitally important in our age. You know, when I was a kid, the kind of church culture that I grew up in, you ask questions and you might get smacked in the head or the Sunday school teacher's going to grab your ear and tell your dad, you know, don't ask questions. You just, you know, you believe it because it's in the book. Yeah, okay, I understand that. But can you tell me why? Can you help me understand this? My, 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 mind, my mind needs to understand this. My heart rejoices in what my, my mind comprehends. These should be working together. Can you help me understand this? And that is what I'm up here to do this morning. I want you to understand this problem of evil. But more, more important than understanding, I want it to draw you in repentance and faith and worship and devotion to Christ's church. Because if you learn some arguments or some ideas or whatever, and you're not devoted to his church and his mission, and you're not falling in love with him and in awe of him, then, then, then there's a disconnect. So we come to do both. Seek him in both as you're listening to me this morning. Now, in the hopes of equipping you, 
we have been considering in this sermon series how to respond to those who uh, don't believe in the true and living God of the Bible and, and how people will use this so-called problem of evil to argue against the God of the Bible. The so-called problem of evil that the atheist raises is, is simple. If God exists, why doesn't God stop evil? If God is all-powerful, then God has the power to stop evil. If God is all-good and all-loving, then surely he would want to. So in the first sermon, we considered the ancient Epicurean paradox. That is, if God exists, then there would be no evil in the world. There is evil in the world, therefore God does not exist. Answers to this paradox, or so-called problem, are what are known as theosities. And in case you weren't here in previous weeks, a theosity is a response to the alleged problem of God's existence and the presence of evil. It comes from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and, 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 and the group of words dike, which means uh, to justify or to make judgment, together meaning how do we justify the existence of God in the presence of evil. An initial response to this that we have considered in this sermon series is a so-called problem cannot actually get started because it is assuming what it wants to disprove. Namely, namely, you are assuming that there is an objective criterion by which you can demarcate between good and evil in order to disprove the existence of the one who gives you that objective criteria. If you didn't follow me, very simply put, if you don't have a lawgiver, you can't have a law, and if you don't have a law, you can't tell what goes against it or not. The law is what tells you this is good, this is bad. In order to have a law, you must have a lawgiver. If you don't have an objective law, you just have subjective opinions. In some cultures, you are told to love your neighbor. In some cultures, they eat their neighbors. There are cannibalistic cultures, and there are philanthropic cultures. Who am I to judge? Uh, no, I think it's okay to say the cannibalists who eat their neighbors are wrong. They are objectively wrong. If there was a culture in the world somewhere that uh, tortured senior citizens for entertainment purposes, I think we could all say that is absolutely wrong. I'm not taking my parents there for vacation. It's a bit too dangerous, but who am I to judge? No, you should judge. That's wrong. You shouldn't torture senior citizens for entertainment purposes. But if there is not an objective criterion, then you cannot say that that's wrong. All you can say is to each his own, you guys do that, we don't do that. Who are we to say? No, 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 there's an objective criterion. Coming back to the issue of God, if you want to say there's evil in the world, therefore there's not God, you can't say there's evil in the world unless you have a God who gives you evil and good. So you're assuming the existence of God to get the category of evil in order to argue that God doesn't exist. You can't even get started. It's like saying I can't speak a word of English. You just did speak a word of English. It doesn't work. The Oxford scholar who turned from atheism to theism specifically to Christian theism, C.S. Lewis, a profound mind, he wrote this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how I, I got the idea of just and unjust. A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? And it goes on to give you the very rationale that I just gave you. Now, in my experience, thoughtful atheists will concede this ground, but often they will make yet another attempt. Okay, fine, you got to have God to get that criteria or whatever. But then they will move to attack the existence of God along these lines. They will say, well, if God is good and God is the creator of all things, as you say, and evil is a thing, then God is the creator of evil. So God can't be good. So they'll say, well, maybe he exists, but he's not good. In which case, I'm not giving up my Sundays and believing in your Jesus and all this stuff. And so then the argument moves to the evil and creation paradox, which goes a little something like this. Hit it. God created all things. Evil is a thing. Therefore, God created evil. Therefore, your God is not good. Now, how do you respond to this? Are you prepared? It stands to reason that the first two premises are correct, then the conclusion follows. But how do you respond to this, believer? What do you say? Now, logically, you need to address the premises because there is an error in premise number two. Look at premise number two. Christian theology has not historically understood evil as a thing. Since it is not a thing, it is not created any more than unicorns, since they're not a thing, uh, were, uh, are they created, and hence they don't exist. Now, in the Bible, in the creation account in Genesis, everything that was created, we saw, we studied in the sermon series Genesis, it was good. Repeated, God's creating, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Therefore, by definition, evil is not good, so it was not created. Here's the biblical syllogism. All things that are created 
by God are good. Evil is not good. Therefore, evil was not created by God. Ha ha. Now, again, remember I told you, you got to keep it simmering on the stove. You still got it on the stove. You still turn in the, the stuff you're simmering, whatever you're hungry for, Father's Day. I said onions earlier, but now I'm thinking about bacon. You got to turn the bacon over. You don't want it to burn. Keep it simmering. Let's go back to the bacon. First Timothy chapter four in front of you. What does verse four say? What do we read in verse four? Everything created by God is what? Good. Okay, so uh, the, you, you want to argue with me about what I believe in the Bible. Here you go. First Timothy 4, 4. Everything created by God was good. All things that are created by God are good. Evil is not good. Therefore, evil was not created by God. There you go. Along with this verse, the creation account in the Bible, of course, uh, it, it tells us the same thing. I already noted, creation is said to be good, therefore all things that were created were good. Hence, hence beings, existing things, are good. Now to be good, or, or to have goodness, that is a property that comes in degrees, like the temperature. Some things are hotter, some things are colder. That said, in science, cold is explained as the absence of heat. Similarly, this is what evil is. Follow me, evil is the absence of good. When good is lowered, we, 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 we feel evil. When, when the heat is lowered, we feel the cold. But cold itself, scientifically, they would say it's not a thing, but it's the lowering of a thing, heat. And in the case of evil, it's not a thing, it's the lowering of a thing, good. Along with the heat illustration, consider another analogy of something that most people love, donuts. When you get a donut, what, what do you call that middle right there? What do you call that part right there? You call it the donut hole. Now, is the donut hole a thing? No, it's the absence of a thing. The absence of what? Dough. Now, sidebar, never mind those delicious little dough balls that you can get that they call donut holes because that ruins the illustration and that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Everyone finds an exception to an illustration, okay? But follow the real illustration here. The hole of the donut hole of the proper traditional donut is the absence of the dough. Analogously, evil is the absence of good. The African church father and theologian Augustine in the 300s wrote, evil has no positive nature, but it is the loss of good that has received the name evil. Going back to the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis, I quoted a moment ago. Once again, he's on point and he writes, the truth is that evil is not a real thing at all. Like God, it, it, it's simply good spoiled. This is why I say that there can be good without evil, but no evil without good. You know what the biologists mean by a parasite? An animal that lives on another animal? Evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. Evil is a parasite of the good. Now granted, parasites exist, of course. All illustrations kind of you know, come apart here, but unlike evil, in terms of being an existing thing created by God. That said, in another sense of the term existing, we speak of evil as existing, but specifically what we mean by that is a privation of the good. Just as you can't eat a donut hole because it's not a, a real thing in the sense of it being a thing, but it is a real thing in the sense of describing the absence of the donut dough that is the whole. Evil is the whole. It is the absence of the good. Again, you're simmering. Don't let that bacon burn. First Timothy 4 in front of you. The description there uh, in the text, we read about these evil spirits. And what are the evil spirits doing? What does it say? They're deceiving. What is deceiving? Deceiving is taking the good and twisting it, turning it down, messing with it. Okay? Deception takes a thing, truth, and it messes with it. To deceive is to take a, a real thing, good, and a mess with it. In summary, it is not a product of God, it is the product of demons and wicked humans. Now, as we engage others on the topic, we need to keep in mind that there is spiritual deception at play, lest we think that we are merely engaging in a logical discourse. I am equipping you for a dialogue that is logical and factual, but I'm also preparing you, as I reminded you earlier, that there is a material realm and a spiritual realm. And so you must understand that at all times, you are engaging not in a mere discourse of logic, but in a spiritual conflict. And so our engagement brings us into the realm of spiritual dimensions. That said, it is important that we engage in those dimensions prayerfully. So as I'm talking with someone, I'm praying. I'm praying as I'm talking to them. 
Lord, open their eyes. My logic isn't going to win this discussion. Open their eyes. Lord, open their eyes. We read inside of Scripture, Paul writes that the God of this age has blinded minds from understanding. Satan has the power to, to lock minds. And in our sin, we're trapped in our sin and we can't see things. You've, you've been there in your sin where you haven't seen things and God graciously pulls the blinders off and you go, man, I was being a jerk or I was being lazy or I was being whatever. And, and the Lord is gracious to do that. You need the work of God as you're engaging with people. And don't ever forget, don't ever forget that. You don't see what you see because your eyesight was so keen. You see what you see because God was gracious to you. And so, so treat people that way. They're, they're image bearers and they're enslaved to sin and there are forces of darkness that are wrecking havoc on them. And so as we're engaging, these aren't mere arguments to go, tat, 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 I got you now, tat, 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 tat. This isn't Twitter. There are souls on the line. Engage them with grace and with truth. Now, as, as, as we engage, let us also keep in mind that don't always be on the defense. You, you can go on the offense, too. A lot of believers forget this. We're always in the position where the world is like, you Christians, oh, boo, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, this month in particular, just shoved in your face, rainbows everywhere. And, you know, it's a, you Christians, you're this, you're that. Okay, I have responses defensively, but I can also engage offensively as well. And in this case, with the problem of evil, the interlocutor also has a problem with the problem of evil. We're not the only ones with a problem here. You got a problem too. So how do you make sense out of the problem of evil? You intuitively know the problem of evil is real. You know it's not a facade. You know it exists. So how do you make sense out of it? And in particular, as we engage offensively with theosity, we want to push back against their anthropodicy. Now there's a word for you. Have you heard that one? Anthropodicy? You haven't. Well, that's good. You're in the right place. Welcome to Delray Church, where we teach you stuff. Anthropodicy. Now this is derived from the Greek word anthropos, that means a human. And again, the word group, DK, which means justice, judgment. Okay, so this is an attempt, this is an argument to justify that human beings are fundamentally good despite the commission of evil acts by some. So in the world, people say things, you know, humans are basically good, is the secular anthropology. The secularists have this anthropodicy that humans are basically good, and so then now the problem of evil becomes something that we can use to push against their doctrine. Again, the text is simmering on the stove. It talks about these doctrines that are out there, that, that are in the world, and, and we want to engage those. We want to engage this anthropodicy. So <clears throat> then offensively, we begin to engage. And there, there's a, a, a problem here then w w with their understanding of humanity. And we want to push against this. You say humans are good, but what about the guy in Texas? What about the guy over here? What about the guy over here? How do you make sense out of those things? Even further, you want to ask us the question, as Christians, why do bad things happen to good people? But your premise assumes this anthropodicy where you think that humans are good. And we understand this much differently. Why do bad things happen to good people? Let me tell you something. Nothing ever bad happens to good people. It doesn't happen. You go, well, what about... They're not good people. Our, our, our scriptures teach us Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that no one is righteous, no, not one. And so for the person who doesn't believe in God, they're operating off of this assumption that humanity is essentially righteous. It is the human that is the God who is therefore good. And then we offensively need to push back against this and say, well, then how do you account for this doctrine that you have that humans are basically good and we're looking at all the heinous things that they do? And even further, we can lift up the law of God and push it even further to say, as Jesus did, oh, okay, there's murder, but okay, let's, let's get to the root. What about anger? Is there anyone who escapes the judgment of anger? Is there anyone who hasn't been angry before? Let me tell you, the root of, of murder is anger, and you've all been angry. That same, murderous, that same murderous spirit courses through you just as well. Who are you to judge the shooter in Uvalde? You have the same issue. You have the same problem. And so it's an opportunity for us then to show that and then, and then further to show them the one who solves the problem. The one who, is, who, who, who died for murderers. The one who was murdered for murderers, the Lord Jesus. And so as I offer these sermons, I, I, I want you to always be 
thinking, okay, how do I bring this back to the gospel? And by going on the offense, then we want to be doing that. So we've considered some ways of addressing the so-called problem of evil. I've presented you with three broad theosities, the free will defense, the natural defense, and the divine judgment defense. I've shown you the free will defense that, uh, you know, we look at evil and it's tied to the free will of humans, that God in Genesis didn't make automatons, he didn't make robots, he didn't program them, I love you, I love you, I love you, but he gave them a will that was capable of having a genuine loving relationship and friendship with him. And we saw what happened with that. Humans rebelled against him. His love was unrequited. Secondly, we saw in our theosity of natural law, we talked about that a bit more last week when we looked at how nature and natural law has been corrupted, which helps us to understand not only human violence, but also natural violence. The earth itself was cursed, and so things in nature are a mess along with things within us are a mess. Thirdly, we saw a divine judgment theosity, which explains God's judgment of violence and the goodness of his law over evil. Okay, now, now these three together, again, these are reminding us of the importance of the gospel. Don't let the bacon burn. Look back at the text. Chapter 3, verse 16, common confession. Great is the mystery of what? He who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. This is the gospel. We worship a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. We worship this one God in three persons who created the world. This world rebelled against him and ushered in death. Humans ushered in death. This one God who eternally exists in love, the Father sent the Son who took on human flesh. He was revealed in the flesh. He took on human flesh. He, he, he died in the place of sinners to pay a debt that we owed. He paid a debt that we owed for us. We owed a debt that we could not pay and he paid it for us in the flesh. Go on, go on. What does it say? He was vindicated in the spirit. He was risen from the dead. Vindicated. The debt that he paid, that check didn't bounce. The transaction went through. It was there for us. He is seen by angels. Today you will be with me in paradise. Risen in glory. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed in the world. Taken up. He has ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And this is the good news that the one who has come, who, is, who has died in the place of sinful humans, all of us, all of us, again, there's no one good, nothing bad happens to anyone good, save for him. He's the only human that ever existed who was innocent. He is the only one who ever had anything bad happen to him that was undeserved because he is good. Why do bad things happen to good people? The only person who could answer that, the only person who could ask that, rather, is Jesus. And yet we read inside of scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that, that, that he's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he go to the cross going, this isn't fair. I'm innocent. Why do I have to do this for them? No, he did it in joy. And so let me tell you, listener, this morning, you can come to him. The ultimate solution to the problem of evil hung on the cross. And the one who hung on the cross was fully man in your place. And more than mere man, he was fully immortal God, who ha whose prerogative it is to forgive, and he extends his forgiveness to you in him if you would come to him and confess your sins and be set free. He is the only Savior. He is the only way. He is the only sacrifice for sin. His bloody and violent death is the only way to have peace with God. And in speaking of this bloody path, I want to tie the problem of evil in this final message to, 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 to see blood and to see violence and to see humanity and to see nature and to see that while God is not the author of evil, God is in full control of all these things. So in the time remaining, I have to move fast. I want to take you into some references to the side of scripture that are on your outline. And it is important because often in our apologetic answers to the problem of violence, we can domesticate God. We can domesticate him. We can make it sound like God is a pacifist. Or God's like a helicopter parent who's going around giving out participation trophies to everyone. God is, you know, he never drops the whammy or God never calls out the loser or all this evil stuff is happening. God's like, oh, oh, well, I gave you guys free will. Well, I would do something, but your free will, I can't do anything. That is not, that is not what is being taught to you in this sermon series. And so... To close the sermon series, I want to make sure that God hasn't been domesticated in your minds. And on your outline, you've got a lot of references. We have, to move, we have to move fast. I need to make sure that your theology is grounded in the common confession that we just read in 316. 
And I, I want to make sure that you have the God who is in your minds. And not, not the God that you want, but the God who is. And so we're going to look at the God who is in Scripture. And you might find some things offensive about the God who is as we go. But let me remind you that the God who is, is the God who is. And he's not a figment of our own imagination, God, that we have made up. This is the God who is. So we want to align ourselves accordingly with the common confession in this little simmering skillet that we have going here. Uh, now, you know, didn't you say, though, that God's not the author of evil? What are you alluding to here, Matt? Well, you're, you're going to see in just a moment. So uh, put, on, put on your uh, seatbelts and your thinking caps and away we go. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me take you to point number two on your outline. God has used natural violence to bring calamity on the earth. God's not the author of evil. He doesn't create evil. But you need to understand, lest your God be domesticated, that he uses natural violence to bring calamity on the earth. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where I want to take you. I'll explain the references in the parentheses. So we have seen how the sin of man not just affected humans, but it also affected the earth. We looked at the scriptures that explain how the earth was corrupted. We saw that paradise is lost. We saw the earth is tarnished. We saw natural disasters come in as a result of sin and the rest. Now on your outline, you have a reference to Genesis 6 and Genesis 19. In these passages, God respectively uses Genesis 6, a flood, Genesis 19, a firestorm, and he uses it to destroy humanity. Okay? 2 Peter chapter 2, draw your eyes at verse uh, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and he did not spare the ancient world and preserved Noah, that's Genesis 6, the preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood on the world on the ungodly. Verse 6, and when he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, Genesis 19, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. The destruction of human life by flood and firestorm was violent. Men, women, children, babies, they died in this divine act. And here's the thing, these are just two examples. We could go through the Bible and I could show you dozens of these where God uses violence. And what we would consider a natural disaster, flood and firestorm. These passages give us a divine perspective on God. Don't domesticate God. You, you better understand the God who is. What do you think about this? God crushing people with wind and fire and flood? I spent last week saying God is not responsible, that sin has ruined the earth and, and that the earth doesn't function right and there's, there's firestorms and floods and volcanoes and, and what have you. And, and, and a theosity for that is to say this goes back to the free will of men. But I need you to understand something as well, that God is sovereign and that God often uses these things. How is this not evil then, Pastor Matt? Because it's just. It's that simple. It's just. Listen, if a man broke into my house and he was trying to kill my children and he had them tied down and he was one by one going to do horrible things to them, he had them tied down, he had beaten them and one by one he was going to move through them and abuse them in horrible ways and I, and I, and I came home and I found this man if I subdued this man and I took his life, you would say that was, that was justified. That was justified. In fact, you would, you would consider it noble. You would say he was a hero. He, he saved his family from horrible, from horrible abuse. So if God does it, why is it any different? At school shooting in Texas, if, if there was a, you know, a Bruce Willis kind of guy there, who went die hard on the guy, climbed through the air ducts and just dropped down and domed the guy. Papeo! We would all go, that was awesome, right? And if TMZ had the video, we would watch it over and over. That's what you get when you do something like that. And no, and no one would say, how could you do that? You're the author, you're the author of evil. No, you wouldn't say that. You'd say he's a hero. He's a hero. Now, the difference, however, is that we fail to see that we are deserving death like the wicked shooter. And so when we hear about God bringing judgment, we forget that. And we think, oh, we're little orphan annies, we're little cute kids, you know, these little cute, these little cute humans are dying. No, you're, you're Uvalde shooters under the law of God. You've all broken the law of God, so you come under the wrath of the law of God. And we go, but, but I'm, not, I'm not as bad as him. I'm, I'm no Hitler. I'm no, you know, 
Yeah, but that's not, that's not how the law works. If you violate the law, you can't appeal to instances where you've obeyed the law or you can't appeal to other lawbreakers so as to elevate yourself because the law isn't graded on a curve. I can't, I can't kill a person and stand in the court and go, but your honor, I mean, compared to the guy in Uvalde, I mean, it was just one, what's the big deal? And think about all the people that I haven't murdered. I mean, my goodness, far outweighs my bad. That's not how the law works. And so when we read about God's judgment in Scripture, we're reminded that, fundamentally in this problem, this anthropodicy from the world that has infected our minds, where we think that we are basically good, and we read these accounts and we're scandalized by them, but we need to be reminded of what the Scriptures teach. God is not taking innocent life. He's taking guilty life. And further, as the giver of life, it's his prerogative. And as a sovereign of the universe, he has authority over all things, including the authority to end life in this fallen world. And the ending of life includes the use of natural forces like floods and firestorms, and it also includes the use of human violence, which brings us to the next point. God has used human violence to bring calamity upon humanity. We discussed free will in this series. I, you know, human violence is a real result of free will. He gave them free wills, and with their free will, they take things, and they kill each other or whatever. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, that's good for conversation with someone who's like, God's evil, you know, where is your God or whatever. But I'm talking to you, church. I'm talking to you. Don't sterilize your theology. We have to understand that God is above us. God is beyond us. God is sovereign. He's controlling all things, including your free will. No decision you make escapes his sovereign rule. There's a sense in which you are free, but by golly, you are not thwarting God in your decision-making. We've talked about how, how, how violence, both human and natural, are part of the fallen world, and creatures have a free will, and I've argued that violence and evil isn't God's fault. He's not the author of evil. Rather, it's the doing of humans who pervert their free will, and they use it you know, to do corrupt things or whatever, and that's an important theosity, and that's true, but in talking about that, you mustn't you mustn't conclude that that's just all there is to the story here. Further, you must read your Bible and see that God actually ordains and uses free will according to his plan. And he's God, and he gets to do that. Now, let me qualify this, because uh, when I'm saying that, you know, sometimes uh, violence is the result of God, I'm speaking colloquially, because at the end of the day, everything is the result of God in another sense. God has decreed all things in his creation. Nothing happens outside of his decree. That said, within his decree, there are some things that he, follow me, permits to happen. This is what we call his permissive decree. Decretum permissivum in the Latin. This is, goes back in the history of the church. This is the understanding of it. Now, in a sense, we understand that God is not actively causing sin. He's not the author of sin, but he permits it. And hence, he's not the author of it. And we don't blame evil on him. But he is still sovereign, and so the presence of evil is, isn't thwarting him in any way. It's just what he permits. John Calvin, the great reformer, wrote that man falls because God's providence has so ordained it, but he falls by his own fault. Now, we will never understand this side of the second coming, you know, the meticulous sovereign hand of, of God, and even on the other side of the second coming, we likely won't understand it either. All of the whys of God's reasons for permitting things but we can rest assured that God is good, amen? That God has complete knowledge, amen? And that we don't have complete knowledge. I don't know why God let your loved one die. I don't know why God let this happen. I have limited knowledge. I can make sense out of some things. I read inside of the Bible of God's using of human violence, and I look up these passages that you have here in the parentheses, and I see where God uses Israel in particular for for engaging in violence for his purposes. And I look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12, and it helps me make sense out of some things. I see how he uses his people for, for violence in the old dispensation of Israel. And I, and I understand why, uh, according to Deuteronomy 18. I, I see that here's a people who are sacrificing their children in fire. In Leviticus 18 and 20, we read about the sins of this people. They, they raped their kids, there was incest, there was cultic prostitution, there was bestiality, there was violence, there's all, all kinds of uh, perverted stuff that I won't even get into, but you can, you can read in the text. 
The, 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 the Canaanite god El uh, was a god who killed his own father and emasculated him. He killed his favorite son. He cut off his daughter's head. He sacrificed to another, another son to his dead father. He seduced women. His wife was Asherah. They had all kinds of kids doing kinky stuff. They, the kids of Baal, the storm god, his wife, Anat, the goddess of love, fertility, and war. They wade through the blood of their worshipers as they slay fertility cults prostitution. You see all this wicked stuff that's going on. And, and I go, okay, I could see how God would use human violence to take care of that because that's like the shooter in Uvalde. That's violent. It needs to be stopped. And violence stops violence. You're, you're not going into that Uvalde situation with a Barney cartoon on a tablet trying to talk him down. You, you got to take him down. That's how that's going down. Okay. Likewise, uh, with, with these passages where we see conquest and what have you, that's how it goes down. With the violence of human history before us and the topic of theosity, it is worth noting here that our list of theosities that we've covered, free will, natural law, and divine judgment, there's another one that theologians put forward. It is known as the, uh, the best of all possible worlds theology. And the appeal here in terms of a theosity is that the world that we have is actually the best of all possible worlds. If you want to pause, that, that God has what's called middle knowledge, and the, the, he has knowledge not only of past and future, but of all possibles. And that, and that God, uh, some would pose, that, that God enacted this world, and it's the best of all possibilities. Now, 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 now follow me here. Follow me here. God, in his power and omniscience, created the best of all possible worlds, running all the scenarios of our free will and all the things that we would do in all possible scenarios, and he actualized the best one with the most amount of love and flourishing. And yet, because there is still evil in this world that was the best option, evil was still then, therefore, a necessary consequence of human free will, and God then you know, brought about the world uh, that would be the best of all of them, and yet still there is evil. Now, to be sure, there's theological problems with this, and I can't get into middle knowledge and all the rest, but this is just another thing to equip you for purposes of understanding in this, in this sense, as it relates to the topic of, you know, this is the best of all possible worlds, in all possible worlds, we're fallen. In all possible worlds, there's evil. On your outline, you have references to God using and commanding people uh, in acts of, of violence. Israel in this dispensation, Deuteronomy 20, you have there. It might seem weird. You could read it and be like, dude, this sounds like jihad or some street vengeance or whatever. But again, you go back and you see what's going on historically. This is like a classroom in Texas. It's filled with violence and bloodshed, and God used force to cleanse it. Uh, yet still, that is offensive to modern secular sensibilities on many levels because it appears to modern secular sensibilities that it is not fair. Joshua and Judges, you read about battles and violence uh, in, in, uh, in, in Exodus, for that matter. We, we read of violence in Egypt. Think about God sending the angel who violently takes away human life uh, in Exodus. A former bishop, John Shelby Spong, a former Christian who, who became an unbeliever and just devoted his life to attacking the Bible. He wrote a book called The Sins of Scripture. And he writes, Can we really worship the God found in the Bible who sent the angel of death across Egypt to murder the firstborn males in every Egyptian household in order to facilitate the release of his chosen people? Can we? Uh, yeah, I totally can. I, I totally can. Uh, that is the God who is, and I, I, I must come at his feet. And, and, and on, on this note here of, you know, sort of angels engaging in these, in these things, I, I understand that God has reasons in these. Albeit, I might not understand it, but God uses these, these forces for subduing evil. And on the note of children, it's worth noting that in Christian theology, there is a biblical case to be made that God is merciful to infants and the unborn, graciously taking them into heaven in death, which means that in these instances of the taking of life of the young, it actually means their rescue. Rather than having them being raised in homes of abuse and neglect and wickedness where they might be sacrificed to pagan gods or, or turned into prostitutes for pagan sex cults or sold into slavery, the conquest of Canaan and other instances of human and natural disaster that were had in the providence of God actually led to their rescue in paradise. If you want to read more about baby and child death in heaven, I'd encourage you to pick up this little book John MacArthur wrote called Safe in the Arms of God gives you a biblical explanation for this. Now, of course, if you don't believe in God, then you don't have grounds for heaven. So the explanation of heaven and there being a rescue, you go, well, I don't believe that. Well, I mean, hey, th that's on you, bro, because if you're asking me to make sense out of it, God actually rescues their children in the taking of their life from this life. 
and brings them into a life that is everlasting, perpetual, and blessed. And, uh, you know, take, take mine and usher them in for Pete's sake. When they've been there 10,000 years and they're rescued from five years of hell on earth, I'll, I'll sign them up every time for that. That's, that's winner, winner, chicken dinner. But alas, the atheists are still going to gripe. Richard Dawkins, the popular atheist preacher, wrote in his book, The God Delusion, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, uh, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Tell me what you really think. Uh, you know... Now, as a Christian, I take huge issue with this. And as I read the Bible, I, I, I see what he's doing. He's distorting the text, like his father, the devil. You take God as he's presented, and you twist it, just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Is your God really good? Oh, he don't, why doesn't he want you to eat from that? Oh, he's trying to withhold from you. He's not really good. And you just begin to twist, and you begin to twist what the text says. The, 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 the battles in Scripture, where we, where we see God ushering... In, in violence, as, as, as I've said, it's showing you the God who is and it's showing you the severity of sin. It's showing you the God who is, as he's described in the text of Scripture, he's described as, as a warrior. God is a warrior. And I, I think that many in our pacifistic, uh, you know, comfortable Western culture, we forget what it is like to live in the real world where you have enemies who are killing you. And you want a warrior. You want someone to come who's strong and it's going to subdue. So as we sit on our, on our couches with like 70% of our culture is obese and whatever, uh, you know, and we're just like, oh, uh, uh, uh. no, no, no. If you live in the real world where you actually have oppression and you actually have evil and you actually have violence, that's actually what you want. And when we get glimpses of it, like in Uvalde, all those parents were outside of that classroom saying, somebody go in there and a gun and get that guy. And no one's walking out of that, you know, if a guy ran in there and did that, no one's going to say that was bad or that was wrong or anything like that. We see, look, this is, this is justice. This is justice. So we see God using violence inside of Scripture. We see God doing this, and it is not an act of evil. It is an act of justice. In Scripture, we read in Genesis 9, God told Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall he be shed, for he is in the image of God. The taking of innocent life, we call that murder. The taking of guilty life, however, is not murder. We call it justice. We call it justice. Now, all of that to say, we are not Israel. We live in a, different, uh, in a totally different dispensation. Uh, we are not engaging in any, uh, you know, acts like this or whatever. So when sometimes people try to use the Bible that way and they go, Oh, you know, why aren't you? Or they'll do it with dietary codes in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, I was making jokes about bacon earlier, you know, oh, you eat bacon, you just pick and choose what parts of the Bible you believe. No, you should really learn how to read the Bible because there's different dispensations in the Bible and we're not under that one. The story's kind of moved along and you should get with it. So, and, and in the story moving along, we actually have the Messiah of Israel coming and he dies, he dies for the people of Israel and he dies for his people, the church, and he ushers in this new thing that we're all a part of and the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of peace and we go in peace proclaiming his peace it's a it's a different age but in the age of old we see him using violence in this way and that's a part of our scripture and our understanding of God and in our understanding of God wherein we see violence we also need to be reminded of his patience look at Ezekiel 33:11. the prophet cries out say to them as I live declares the Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Turn back. You see his heart. You see his compassion. You see, you know, God, God is there. And, and this isn't where we see violence and we see these texts inside of Scripture. It's not God just, you know, he, like he, lo he loves his creation. He loves his image bearers. This, this isn't anything that's like, you know, sadomasochistic. In the words of uh, Mr. Spong there. Now, uh, with regard to the problem of evil, when we show these instances of God, you know, punishing evil, and, and then people use that to attack God, you go, okay, well, which is it, man? Because on the one hand, you're like, there is no God because there's evil. And then you go, okay, well, let me show you where God's like punishing evil. Well, a good God wouldn't do that. You go, come on, man. Like, you know, you're really picking and choosing what you want to do here. There's no God because there's evil. And then, and then you want to complain when he, when he punishes evil. And this leads to the, the final point before the conclusion here. 
God, in the end of the thing, in the end of human history, he's going to subdue evil. You have a reference here to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16, 19, cross-reference with Matthew 24 through 25, prophets like Zechariah, and, and they spoke about this. I hope you, you have Second Peter still simmering, still simmering on your stove here. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, draw your eyes at the text in verse 2. You should remember the words of the Lord spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken to you by the apostles. Verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. And they maintain this and escapes their notice by the word of God that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with the water. That's the reference to Noah. But his word present in the heavens and the earth are being reserved for a fire, kept for a day of judgment, destruction of ungodly men. It's the promise that God is going to put the final kibosh on evil. Look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and the works will be burnt up. Verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed. Skip to verse 12. The coming of the day of the Lord. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat. God is going to destroy evil. He's going to judge the whole earth. God, God, God's not good because there's evil. Oh, he, he's going to get rid of evil. Well, I don't like that either. Okay, well, which is it, buddy? I mean, which is it? The atheist says, I don't, I don't, I don't like the way he does it. Well, okay, uh, fine. That's the heart of the problem, though, isn't it? You don't like the way he does it. You don't like who he is. I call on you to repent and ask him for forgiveness for not liking him. And to receive him. Because everything about him is to like. Everything about him is to love. Look at the text in verse 8. It says that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises. Come some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You spend decades of your life not liking him, attacking him, forsaking him, sinning against him, neglecting his church, neglecting his will, neglecting his way, and guess what? He is going to be patient with you. People say, why hasn't God come back yet? I, I can think of thousands of reasons of why he hasn't come back. And I tell you what, I'm one of them. I'm thankful he didn't come back. Uh, because if he had come back, I, I'm, I might not have experienced the salvation that I have in him and the forgiveness of sins. He hasn't come back yet because he is, he's waiting on some of you, even here and now, to come to him, to be saved. He's saving a people for himself. He's patient. He's rescuing people. He's rescuing as many people from this fallen earth that he has ordained. And in that rescue, then, he will dole out his retribution. That's what happens in war. We've we got to go in there, we've got to rescue as, as many people as we can, and then we've got to go in and overthrow the enemy. There's evil because there's a war raging against the Creator, and what God is doing is He's rescuing a people for Himself, and He's rescuing them through His people, the church, and the proclamation of who He is. And as we herald this message and we invite people, as I'm inviting you now, come to Him and be set free, He's setting the captives free. Verse 13. According to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. He will make all things new. He is Lord of the heavens and the earth. He is Lord over evil. So then by conclusion, I've given you these messages. I've given you some apologetics in the first three. And in this last one, I really wanted to ground your doctrine of God because I didn't want you to walk away from those messages with just some kind of free will apologetic where you have this domesticated God who's back there like, well, I would do something, but I can't. No, no, he's in control of free will, even. He's Lord over all. Even what he permits, he ordains to permit what he permits. And so don't read these uh, accounts and think that God is not involved. Further, don't read these accounts of God bringing death in Scripture and cringe. The thing is, don't forget that, 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 that when God takes life, that is just. And, and while that's a different dispensation, as I shared, in this dispensation, God's still taking life. 
You know that, right? Every day, hundreds of thousands of people around the world die. And there's not a person that dies who God's not like, an angel comes to God, did you know that uh, Bill Johnson died? Oh, what? <laughs> Nothing escapes him. Nothing escapes him. Life is in his hands. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said that a sparrow doesn't die or fall to the ground apart from the Father God. God decides when your last heartbeat will be. God decides whether you're going to die in a school shooting, a car accident, a heart attack, cancer, or whatever. He decides that. And everything that he decides is just and right and good. And he owes us nothing. Nothing. And don't mishear. You have free will. So don't say, well, Pastor Matt said I could eat as much bacon as I want, and I, I don't have to exercise, and if I have a heart attack, it's Yahweh's fault. That's not what I said. I'm saying your decisions about that bacon and not exercising and taking care of your temple, those are totally your fault. But when you die, God's not surprised, and God is not not the sovereign. If I were to drop dead right now, if a plane from LAX were to crash into our building right now, if some crazy fanatic uh, uh, dressed in a rainbow with a bomb or representing whatever group came in here and blew us to smithereens, God would have done no wrong this day. We can give a theosity and we can talk about why he permits and it's the bomber's fault or it's the airplane's fault or whatever, but God is still in control. He still could have stopped every instance of it. And he didn't. And he didn't. And as believers, we come like Job and we say, Though you slay me, I will trust you, Lord. So the equipping of the apologetics isn't meant for you to have God in a box and have it all figured out. It's meant to give you ways of engaging and explaining things. But remember, I shared with you in the beginning, I'm here to equip you, but I'm also here to call you in worship. So as I lift up the God who is, I'm, I, I hope you're having a sense of like, Oh, wow, he's, he's, uh, he's beyond us. And so as I'm watching the news and I'm feeling a certain way or whatever, I, I still need to come and I need to bow before him. Isaiah 45, the prophet tells us, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there's no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising and the settling of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these. So when we see violence, we don't assume that God is somehow passive, and he's not doing something or up to something. Further, when we see violence and things that are hard for us to understand, we need to be reminded what Psalm 135 verse 6 tells us, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep. That's, that can be hard. In particular, when it's not a stranger on the news you're watching, but it's someone you know. But we know God. Because God was gracious to us, and he opened our eyes. And there's a submission in this as we follow after him, and we lay our lives before him. There's a, a letting go in this, and this is a part of me calling you in worship this morning. The world's going to balk at this. They're going to say, I don't, I, don't, I don't like this guy. I don't like the way that he does it. Dr. Vernon McGee once said, let me remind you that it's God's universe, and he is doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe to rule. When you get your own universe, you can do it your way, and the thing is, that is not happening any day. And thank God that it's not happening, because if you had your own universe, you would mess it up, and you would still need a savior in that universe. And it's in this universe that the God who created it has stepped in in the Savior. And so as we come to the communion table today, we're celebrating the one who has stepped in. And we're celebrating that in our theosities, as we've been wrapping ourselves around this free will defense, the natural law defense, divine judgment, uh, some who pose the possible world's thesis, that further, none of this is wasted. The two final theosities are that God has a greater good in our suffering, and that God in our suffering, he's actually preparing us for everlasting life with him. I'm going to close with this text. I'd be remiss if I gave a sermon series on the problem of evil and didn't put this text in front of you. It's a wonderful text to close on. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for those 
He causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Notice he's in control. Those he saves, he loses none. They're secured in his hands. And with each step, he's saving them and bringing them all the way to the end of glorification. And he's using all the pain, all the evil, all the violence, natural disasters, all of it for good. Now that is a theosity for those who worship him. The world is not going to receive that. You, dear brother and sister, that's for you to receive. To come by faith today and say, Father, have your way. Evil, famine, loss, death suffering for your good lord have your way with me i'm your servant though you slay me i will trust you let's respond to him in communion and in song as we reflect and we seek him to transform us if you want to read more you want to learn more this is an excellent book it's called what about evil by scott christensen if you're like four sermons i want more here you go uh this is awesome reading pick it up get it on amazon Read it. Tell me how you're reading and processing. I'd love to share more with you. But now is our time to respond in worship, in repentance, in faith. Let's come. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, your son would come and die for us. We thank you, Lord, uh, for equipping us with theosities to engage those around us. And Lord, we thank you for reminding us in your word who you are. The undomesticated God. The warrior God. The God who, whose, whose wrath burns against sin and does so justly and rightly. We, we, we saw quotes from unbelievers who, who recoil at you. And Lord, I pray that none who hear your word this day would recoil, but all of us would repent. And in repentance, we would find life. So as we come to the communion table today, Lord, and we think of your son and that confession that we read in Timothy, that great confession of the one who came in flesh, of the one who was vindicated, of the, of the one who is exalted, and the one who is returning again. We come to the table proclaiming him who has come and will come, who has handled the evil within our hearts, giving us new hearts, and will handle the evil of the earth in the last days. Lord, equip us to this end and draw us now, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.